Hey everybody, this is Joel. Welcome to Bonfire Podcast, brought to you by Camp Jojo, a very special camp for young adults that have lost a loved one to suicide. This is our very first exclusive interview, and Karina was able to hook up with her good friend Tachi Owanebu to discuss her most recent article in the Seattle Times. As a black woman, I can't ever stop thinking about racism. It's not a choice. It's my reality. Enjoy! Welcome back to Bonfire Podcast, brought to you by Camp Jojo, where we hope to encourage and facilitate discussions in teens about difficult topics while promoting mental health. I'm Karina, and today I'm here with my good friend Natachi Anwamebu to talk about some of the opinion articles she's written recently. Um, Tachi, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Well, hi, I am Natachi Onwamebu. I am from Bethesda, Maryland, um, but my parents immigrated from Nigeria. Um, I study political science with minors in creative writing and um, African and African-American studies at Stanford. Um, I've always been interested in journalism when I was younger I made a newspaper for my second grade classroom and from there it's been equally nerdy and not that good <laughs> um I did journalism in high school and um uh, joined a couple publications uh at Stanford now I've been writing for the Seattle Times for about two years disjointedly um was an intern last summer, and now this summer I'm back doing some freelance writing. Um, I was meant to do an internship at the Washington Post, but that was canceled due to coronavirus. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Awesome. So, Natachi's most recent article can be found on the Seattle Times website. It's a really great read. I hope all of you guys listening have read it or will read it. It is called As a Black Woman, I Can't Ever Stop Thinking About Racism. It's not a choice. It's my reality. And it's an opinion piece um, that she wrote in light of recent events. And I was wondering, for those who haven't read the article yet, could you just sort of summarize a bit of what you're trying to convey in this piece? Yeah. So when my editor pitched the idea of the article to me, um, she asked me, there's like so, there's so much media and coverage and journalism around, um, around George Floyd and around this recent um, reinterest uh, by non-Black folk into the Black Lives Matter movement. And she asked, what, what do I wish was out there uh, during this time? And, um, I just told her that nobody was really talking about what I was feeling. And so I wrote a piece that basically was a lot of, it was a lot of frustration into, um, into how the Black Lives Matter movement and how social justice was 
treated as a fad, right? Like right now it's cool to be interested in Black Lives Matter. Right now it's cool to care about basic human rights, but what about all of the times before? And um, uh, throughout my history, like writing articles, I've written about race and socio and socioeconomic inequality and um, a myriad of topics. And it, it just seemed right now that people were listening and people cared as if these resources and these experiences and these stories haven't been there before. So I guess to TLDR it all, it's really just a piece on, on frustration um, and what happens when, what happens when white people don't care anymore. Um, And also just the ability to, at the end of the day, put down your poster, put down your picket sign and sleep comfortably and how that's not a lived reality for a lot of black folk. Yeah. And um, in your piece, you also say, you know, like you were just saying, what is new is white people seeming to care loudly on Instagram and Twitter and protests and talked a little bit about the sense of um, white complacency in which white people get to choose when to care, whereas yourself and other um, Black people don't get this luxury. Can you talk a little bit more about this in particular? Yeah, I mean, the way I try to describe it is, it sounds really dramatic to say um, it's a constant fear, but I think I think about it and I, I, I just try to like, when I try to paint it to other people, it's, it's like, how would you feel if people that looked like you, like your siblings, like your brothers, like your father were being hunted down and shot at when they were jogging through a white neighborhood? My brother's on cross country, cross country. This it's, it's not, it's it's not like, oh, Black Lives Matter movement. Oh, like I care about Black people more than other people care about Black people. It's, it's how do you operate and live in a world where the government, people around you, they, it, there's such a community of fostered hate. Um, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be Black in this country. And that's something that Black folk have to think about every single day when they wake up, when they leave their house, how they, um, how they enter a store. Will they get followed around the store? Will the police get called on them in a store, even though they didn't do anything? There's countless stories of, of um, a Black man picking up a BB gun at a Walmart and police getting called and him getting killed for shopping. There's, there's stories of, of, of people killed when they're sleeping, people killed when they're jogging, people killed when they're just living. And, and that's, that is a fear that a lot of black people have to reckon with every single time they move, they do anything. And that's simply not a fear that a lot of white people have to reckon with. I think in a lot of the response I got to my article, it was saying like, white people were saying oh but like we have it tough too and I don't deny that but what I'm talking about is the specific implicit fear 
that based on the color of your skin, you are target practice. And you, and uh, I'm butchering this quote, but it, it it's something like, um, when the color of your skin is seemed is seen as a weapon, you're never unarmed. Mm-hmm. And and so, I even kind of forgot your question, but yes, no, um, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, and in your article, you also say that sometimes you feel a sense of guilt in scenarios when faced with sort of ignorant comments or microaggressions and guilt about saying nothing when you had a chance to educate white or non-Black people. And I'm sure this sounds very exhausting. So how do you determine for yourself when to take an opportunity to educate someone on these comments? And how do you also determine when to take the burden off and take care of your own mental health instead? Yeah, I think that's the really, really difficult part of of the recent um, reinterest in the Black Lives Matter movement, where it's like I I kind of had it down to a T. The way that I mourn and the way that I practice social justice, I I I knew how to do that, and then all of a sudden, it's like all of a sudden, white people are just asking so much more from me all of the time because all of a sudden they care. And I'm not used to mourning about a senseless Black murder in such a public light with people asking me how I'm doing all of a sudden. It's it's just different and it's just strange. And I think it became really, really difficult for me in this time to reevaluate like how how I want to re-enter the movement and and how how I even categorize like my my voice and my power. It seemed so infinitely out of my hands this time. Like I didn't have a choice in in I didn't have a choice when I wanted to participate in the public light. And when I didn't, um, it seemed like the public light was thrust on me and I didn't ask for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that there is a lot of amazing work that's being done by black activists, which is like um, working and capturing this, this captive audience. It's like, okay, cool. White people care. Let's make long lasting allies of them. Let's get community, let's get money for community bail funds. Let's get all of these under-resourced projects and funds the money and the supporters that they deserve. And a lot of a lot of black people are doing the work of dumbing down racism for white people, which is so extraordinary and so mentally tiring. And I think I was so mentally tired. I felt so guilty that I was letting all my, not letting, but just like experiencing all my black peers taking on such, taking on like such mental burdens where I was just allowing myself to like take a step back and think and mourn. Um, And so, yeah, when I talk about guilt, it's, I'm guilty that I don't have the energy needed 
to dumb down racism for white people all of the time. There's so many frustrating things that are happening right now. People emailing me, calling me, asking what they can do as if Google doesn't exist, as if books aren't like there's so many books titled what I can do as a white ally, how to be an anti-racist. Like Mm. the information is out there. White people, a lot of white people during this time are just, are just once again, putting the burden on, on the black people that are putting themselves out there and trying to show and give resources. So I think, I think it's a lot of mental fatigue that I'm experiencing at least. Yeah. Um, I also know that you've been writing about race for years before this current movement we're all in. Um, So how did writing this op-ed during this time feel different, if at all? I think that... I think that this op-ed was, ideally, I wouldn't have written it for another month, just because it takes me a long time to realize and understand and, and put my thoughts into words. And I think that if you read some of my other pieces, the language the language in this piece isn't as policed and it isn't as pretty and it isn't as whimsical and there's it's 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 a lot more raw and that's just because it was a lot more raw when I was writing the piece um I also think that generally I talk I talk a lot more about like big picture things right like um how education can change the way that we think about race how um how the way that you think about your microaggressions is generally wrong and this was just such a direct response it was Part of me, part of it made me feel slightly guilty because I'm responding directly to George Floyd's murder, but there have been countless other murders that I haven't responded to in a way, in that way. Mm. Um, And so I think um, the the main thing that felt different uh, writing this op-ed during this time is the amount of people that cared. Like... So, so many people were just like sharing the article, reading the article, and it meant a lot. And I think that this is a very important time for people to be engaging with race. But at the same time, it was kind of like, wow, I had been doing all of this work previously to an empty audience. That's what it felt like, right? It's like, um, I've been talking to a lot of Black organizers around the U.S. for some other articles that I'm writing. And they said, they just put it into very nice words, which is basically just like, what white people don't realize is that we have been doing the work. We've we've continued to be doing the work. And right now, this time is just a continuation of the work that we've been doing for years and years and years. And I can't relate to that in, like, in that macro of a mindset because I am 20 and I, I have been engaging critically for, for a lot less time than a lot of these folks have. But it, 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 the sentiment kind of rings the same. It's like, I didn't just start caring. You started caring and you started reading my articles, but I didn't just start writing articles, mm. you know? And so, 
and I didn't just start sharing what I've been writing. So it, it's just like this slight frustration of just, of just not necessarily prevention, but a lot of ignorance could have been avoided if people cared sooner. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And about the response your article got, I know um, writing opinion pieces, um, you're likely to get a lot of different responses and good and bad. And for this particular article, was the response different from what you expected? Was it different from other times you've written about race in the past? Um, it was different than what I expected, um, simply because it got a lot more traction than I ever expected it to get. Um, mm. And that traction meant a lot. A lot of people were reaching out to me and, and saying that, the article helped them reassess something that they hadn't thought about prior. Um, and that's why I, that's why I write, um, mm. to, I write a lot to, um, bridge empathy. And what I mean by that is like, um, create, create connections between narratives that people feel like they can, even if not relate to like, see themselves in a similar situation. And I think empathy is like, or a lack of empathy is a, is a really big issue in race relations right now. Um, and the idea that you can separate yourself from things that are happening to other people around you, that's a really dangerous thing. Um, but mm. to, to go back to your question, the response the article got um, was mainly very positive. I, I separate them into like three different banks, like mm -hmm. very positive, um, really well-meaning. Uh, and then the second bank is you talk a lot about problems. What's the solution? Mm -hmm. Or you talk a lot about what we do wrong. What is it that we can do right? And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier, where it's like, look it up. And or did you really expect a 20-year-old to solve racism? an opinion piece it's simply it, like like I, I I see them when they're writing that email to me like oh this makes sense like I I just want to I just want to know what I can do to help like but what they have to understand the empathy still isn't there because they don't understand the amount of mental work it took to even write the article let alone like handhold them through google searches yeah I'm simply sure. not going to do that. But then a little part of me is like, they're going to go back to the ways they were before and say like, oh, that black writer, like she never got back to me. She never told me the ways that I could help. So I'm not going to help. Right. And so it's, it's like this weird double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. um, but I got a lot of positive responses. Oh, and then the third category is just like flat out racist. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. honestly... The, the category I heard a lot. I find that people that have very negative things to say are often the ones that comment. Um, and mm -hmm. people that like, people that are trying to pull you down and, and um, take apart what you're saying and make you feel stupid and small. Those are the ones that usually take the time 
to email, to tweet at you, to comment on your posts. Um, and so there were definitely people like that. And I've gotten a lot of that in the past. I haven't gotten this much support ever. Hmm. Um, at least as much verbal support where people are actually reaching out to me and, and, um, and expressing that this article helped them in mm-hmm. some way. Gotcha. Awesome. And um, this article in particular, did you feel like you wanted to write it more for others or more for yourself? I think it was definitely, like, like as I said before, if I were writing about this time on my own, on my own timeline, mm. I would have waited a couple of months to to stop being the angry black woman and stop and stop being so frustrated and sad and angry. Because I find that people aren't really receptive to my articles um, when they view me as as being angry. Um, and so but at the same time, the article gave me a, a chance to um, to put my thoughts into words. And so the, the first couple of drafts of the article were really just like, just rants and just very, very angry and very, very all over the place and discombobulated. And as I kept going through the article, finding the things I actually care about and the things that I actually wanted the white Seattleites to read, um, it got clearer and clearer. So I think, I think the article was good for me, um, as a way to process things during this like very, very busy time. And I don't think I would have made that time for myself to process things now, but at the same time, the only reason why I wrote it at this time is because white people are being receptive right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to close this out, you said that you hope white people don't forget once social media and protesting dies down. Don't forget what's happening right now and this movement that we are in. Um, And you also said throughout this interview the immense burden that many white people um, place on Black people who are already burdened to educate them. So whether it's conversations, looking up information on Google individually or donating, what do you think will be the most effective ways for white and non-Black allies to continue this conversation without burdening the Black community more? Yeah, honestly, this is a question that I've struggled with like because I just think it's really hard for me to believe empty promises this early on in the game when it's still cool to care I think I think at the end of the day the only thing that's going to make a lasting change is is that belief of empathy like I was talking about earlier thinking of black as human and therefore um and therefore like the disproportionate rates that they are killed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Therefore, those disproportionate rates are rates of murder and not rates of black murder. And and um, I think that I think that continuing to think of the Black Lives Matter movement as not a black issue but a human rights issue is something that will continue. I think that I think that reading books and keeping yourself informed are great ways to continue being allies to the movement. But I also think it's, I also think the main way is listening to black people when they say another murder just happened. You have to care about this one now, even though there's not eight minutes and 46 seconds of proof, even though you can, even though he had weed in his apartment, he was still gunned down. Mm-hmm. Even though he had broken the law before, he did not deserve to die. Mm-hmm. And I think that these deaths and these murders um, are circulated around black circles, and and white people often don't view them as their problem. But I think that every black death from now on has to be viewed as a human rights issue and mm-hmm. everybody's problem. So I think that continuing to educate, but more importantly, continuing to listen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just like shutting up and listening because as I said before, um, black community organizers have been doing the work. Mm-hmm. This is not new. And maybe if people had started listening earlier before, there would be less cases of such murder and brutality happening in the U S but I don't know. That's a very, broad answer to your question a loaded question um well thank you so much for joining us here on bonfire podcast today um for those of you who haven't read the article again it is um under natachi anwamibu's um articles on the seattle times online um it's an amazing article and as I've said before, this is a um, mental health podcast as well. So at the end, um, we are just going to provide some resources. So um, during these tough times, if you are having thoughts of harming yourself, please visit the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. Especially during these times for the Black community, please visit um, BEAM, which is the Black Virtual Therapist Network. Um, It's an amazing resource. And for there's a new trans lifeline as well. It is 1-877-565-8860. As well as um, the Trevor Project, which is for LGBTQ individuals. You could text Trevor to 1202-304-1200. Thank you so much, Natachi, for educating us today and just... Everyone go read her article. <laughs> Yay! Thanks, Karina. Thanks. <laughs>